Okay, Indra, will you describe for the audience of Earth Life what is the Earth Life going on in around New Delhi right now? What is the expression of humanity that you can see from where you sit? First of all, thank you, Severin, for having me on your show. What India is experiencing right now and what Delhi is going through, I think it's the final battle for democracy, which is being led by the farmers. There are millions of farmers right now who have encamped on the borders of Delhi, blocking the roads, demanding that the government of India take back its three farm laws, which actually allow for the corporate takeover of Indian agriculture. And mind you that 60, about 65% Indians are in the agriculture sector. Agriculture is not just their occupation, it's a way of life for them. So here in New Delhi, among the corona scares, among one of the coldest winters Delhi has seen, we see millions of farmers, you know, many of them above 50 years old, most of them, in fact, war veterans, many of them have actually been in the police force, military force, and now their own government is spraying water cannons on them, is refusing to talk to them, victimizing them, calling them terrorists and insurgents. Yet, they are the most peaceful army that has ever encamped outside Delhi. So this is the scene in Delhi right now. Wow, when I think about the million march on Washington and I think about how many bodies that is in the times of the civil rights movement, which was, of course, inspired by the work of Gandhi in India and his struggle for independence, I can't even imagine what millions of farmers looks like. Can you explain just some of what happens on the ground? How are the people eating and sleeping? How are they self-organizing to be fed? It must be the support of millions more. Yes, Severin. In fact, it's great that you mentioned Gandhi because if Gandhi was in a grave, you know, he was cremated, but if he was in his grave, he'd be joyous right now because his image and his understanding of a peace army, that is what these farmers today represent. They are Gandhi's peace army that have come down. And when you, when you talk about the living conditions, the people, there are, there are a certain people in, in, in India called Sikhs. And they have been a kind of the vanguard for the Indian civilization. They have been led by their gurus and they have very strong community roots. So all over the world, maybe people listening to this podcast have seen the langars we are organized where these people give out free food to people. And whoever needs it without any money, just out of the goodness in their religion. So today, all those organizing powers have come together. They are feeding millions of people for free at these sites, you know. There are these long lines, miles and miles. These people have got their tractors. They've got their tractor trolleys attached. They've got trucks. And they've put, like, for example, in one tractor trolley, they've put up a little canopy. They've put mattresses inside and 10 people are sleeping in one tractor trolley. Now imagine this continuing for miles and miles and 8 and 10 miles. That's how long these peace army convoys are. And it's not just at one place, but all major border roads that get out of Delhi, which are about 4 to 5, they've blocked all of them. They have such high level of precision and organization. No one is going hungry. There is no disease. There is nobody who's falling sick, who's cold. 
and everyone is fed there is absolute sanitation there they've constructed bathrooms they've even got some farm hack style water heaters which use cow dung to to heat the water and they've got steam cooking machines which are actually helping make the rotis the kind of bread that we eat in india and rice and other things where whereas the supplies all the neighbor you know all around delhi are are actually agricultural areas which are in full support of this farmer movement and they are supplying from milk to wheat to flour whatever is required there is a very strong network of supply lines which is going back and forth not just of food and, and other items but also of people so this is such an organized revolution which india has never seen Wow. And just think about in a crisis, in a spontaneous reorganization that you have such resilience and such togetherness, such adaptability and responsibility shows you how how much better it is to run on a community farm system than on a corporate system where when we had our crisis in Katrina, in the south of the United States with a, a big hurricane, we had thousands of people trapped inside of a Super Bowl trying to get deliveries of plastic water bottles and barely getting enough to eat, barely managing to have sanitation. You know, you, you see what the expression of human care is inside of different political economies. I'm very grateful for you to come and speak on the show and share the message directly because... I noticed that in our newspapers in the U.S., we're not really exposed to the volume of journalism that we should be about this event. And that's because we've had a capture now of our own USDA by Tom Vilsack, who is a longtime agribusiness spokesperson and facilitator and enabler who has ignored farmer protest, ignored the legitimate and persistent reform movements and continues to be um, exactly on the same path with Modi, which is trying to allow the biggest financial interests of agriculture to define what is grown, how it's grown, and by whom it's grown. And of course, the digitization and financialization and extreme globalization that is the race to the bottom. I wonder, can you explain some of the voices who are providing an analysis for the farmers who are helping to inform us so that we also can listen to those voices directly, us in the U.S. We listen to Vandana Shiva, but we're not so familiar with the other voices. Before I actually answer that question, Severin, I would like to draw the attention of the listeners to something which is is kind of very deep-rooted in India. India was under slavery of the world's first multinational corporation, which was the East India Company. Our farmers suffered each day loss of land, loss of dignity, and loss of even food. The last morsel was plucked out of their hands and exported out. You know, we had the Great Bengal Famine when Churchill forced Indian farmers to grow opium instead of food and then caught all the food out for the world wars and starved the Indian peasant. You know, the Indian farmers, that memory is still alive. So when we talk about the corporatization of agriculture, when we talk about big farming and and these big agri-giants, and these goliaths, the Indian farmer actually has living memory of them. So, So that's why these farmers, they are highly organized and they know exactly what is happening. 
they don't need you know most people think that leaders lead movements but this is a movement which is shown that the farmers know themselves in fact the government has repeatedly said that the farmers are being misled the farmers don't know anything people are trying to rabble rouse and basically deviate from the main agenda but my personal experience has been when i when i've been to these protests i've spoken with farmers you ask even a boy who's 11 years old or you ask an old man who's 66 75 years old and they'll tell you the exact same story so this is not propaganda this is a feeling which is coming from deep sense of of exploitation which everyone feels the farmers of punjab and haryana where the plight of the farmers is so great that it's almost drug addiction is creeping in violence is creeping in while the government is trying to call them insurgents and terrorists and also stealing their lands the soil fertility has finished there's a cancer train that goes from these areas because of excessive use of pesticides and chemicals so the farmers exactly know what's happening they've been under the spell of a company and they know that right now there is a very deep alignment which is happening between the us big ag and american big ag policies and india just to talk a little bit about the laws till now corporations and big agro processors could not buy directly from farmers they also could not enter contract with farmers and they had to pay a minimum support price to farmers when they bought certain agri commodities or, or certain grains now what the government has done is they've allowed for an america style liberalization which allows for example the cargills or the glencores of the world to come inside make the farmer an indentured labor on their same land so this is what is happening now there are of course some very new leaders coming out there are there are some great voices coming out unfortunately many of them are in the local language of punjabi but still if for for the english readers i would i would definitely tell people to follow p sainath look up devendra sharma and follow for i think more authentic news coming out of india the wire.in which is i think one of india's leading media portals right now i too have written extensively on this subject i in fact i, I still am i'm writing more on how these reforms are done less to do with indian farmers but more to do with cargills of the world so that is the kind of alignment which is happening right now the farmers they've been here for almost a month now they've been marching 2 to 500 kilometers to get to delhi they've been beaten water cannons have been put but they are saying that we are going to come to delhi and occupy delhi this is going to be our occupy movement and the biggest occupy the world has ever seen so that's why people here are very afraid they know that if the farmers lose democracy of the world loses if they can suppress if the status quo if big ag can suppress for example 2 million farmers in india right now very soon all citizens of the world will actually face the same peril well it's the thing that we we worry the most about in in thinking about the free will of the people to self govern to have self determination that we would be controlled and that food itself would become militarized that's the highest expression of control and of course the colonial process that's been going on for so long it strikes me that the historical memory is so strong and of course it's same in europe in europe the family farmers they are much stronger politically because everyone in europe remembers in world war 1 and world war 2 when the food supplies were imperiled and everyone had to be rationed 
the government had to become very involved to make sure there was enough food. And so there's a distrust of liberalization and too much reliance on export import markets. Much more do we want to have our local food, our regional food, our national food security. And tell us, these farmers who have been struggling now for more than two months and marching and preparing this blockade, do they enjoy the support of the citizens and do they enjoy the support of the international community? And how might we as farmers who are feeding many, many people share the word and share the solidarity? First, I think, you know, the Canadian Prime Minister has been most generous and he's been most vocal about criticizing the Modi government and also lending support to the Indian farmers. I think many more leaders need to come out and support farmers because in the end, these are the people who give us food. So every farmer, no matter where you are, you must all write to the Indian government, write to the Indian embassy. So drop them an email in wherever you're listening to this. Tell them that we stand with the farmers. They need to be treated fairly. If you think you cannot write that letter you, to any of the authorities, all I say is have a conversation among your friends. Look at what's happening to people who are voiceless. Look at people who are basically dying in, in, in the Delhi winter. I understand other places are more colder, but they have nothing. They're sleeping on tractor trolleys. And all they want is a fair representation. All they want is their truth to be spoken and people know about it. Because right now the government is working very hard to use all its might, including the media, including the international media and, and other pressure groups to just silence them out. They're using social media to kind of make them villains. So I tell everyone who's watching this, please find out your own facts about what's happening in India. We need to create hope in this world. And I know, Severin, that you yourself have created that garden of hope in America. I want everyone in the world to kind of create that, be the small farmer, and then you can understand what small Indian farmers feel. We have to build a community not divided by countries, not divided by color, by language, but one solidarity. If everyone listening to this stands out and does one thing, one thing this new year for them, I think the farmers will win. The farmers, in the words of Gandhi, carry a will which cannot be defeated. Their bodies can be butchered and they can be killed and shot. But the will that possesses them, I think, is the force of truth. And if anybody and everybody just talks about it, writes, does something, feels for them, it gives them a lot of strength. Well, and this truth power, this will force that you're describing, I think that this is a, a kind of human confidence that is possible when we are working with life that is arises from, it's not, it's not um, surprising that it's the farmers because the farmers are most in connection with life. But this will force is the will force of life itself. And I think part of what makes us fearful and part of what makes us unable to protect our own interests, what, what undermines our confidence is our dependency and our lack of connection with the power of life, that we're living inside a vending machine, living inside an image machine, living inside a gossiping machine uh, that gives us market signals instead of the signals from the earth itself. The earth is clearer. And I think uh, I'm speaking in kind of broad terms, but I don't mind because it feels true that 
in order to do the work that we must do as a, as a human species for our own survival, we need to understand that we have a right to live and that we have the right to take action that ensures that we will live. And that might mean coordinating ourselves inside the democracy to do restoration of our rivers, to do restoration of our lands. It might mean confronting these corporate powers. It has many expressions, but all of it is the will force that you describe that is the life force because we are thinking beings and we are reacting in place. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about some of the memories that are held in this community about the walk for the land I'm, I always talk about. Can you explain what, was, what it was about? How were the British controlling the salt market? How absurd was that? Yes. So what happened is that earlier when we were under the colonial rule, the British said that they had a monopoly on salt and only they could sell and trade in it. And no Indian was allowed. Now, salt is a base necessary for life. Without salt, you'll die. So Gandhi understood this. He understood that how the British want to tax something which, which nature gives us for free. They want to take and, exp and they want to control nature and then, exp and then monetize her. You know, Gandhi felt the beat and the pulse of the earth, the great mother. And then he decided that this is injustice. We have to answer to higher calls from God, from the mother earth, and then break any human laws which are created and which represent tyranny and injustice. So he walked from his ashram in Gujarat, in Sabarmati, a long walk down to the coast, to a small village called Dandi. And there he picked salt and he broke the British law. Thousands and millions marched with him. And in fact, in 2017, you'd be happy to know that Dr. Vandana Shiva and myself, we retraced Gandhi's steps and we went down to Orissa and made the same salt from the sea. That life force sometimes guides your movements. It tells you like it told Gandhi. Today, there's another example from the colonial rule, which happened in 1907, when the British introduced three black laws again, which were basically harmful for the farmers. There was again a movement and millions of farmers blockaded towns of Lahore and other places that time in the British India. The British held out for nine months, but eventually they had to give in to the farmers. It was a very popular movement and it was called Jatta Pagadi Samahal, which basically means as a soldier, you have to take care of your turban or you have to, turban is, is a mark of respect, you know, in India, especially in the older times, you always kept a turban on. And the turban signified dignity and respect. So you have to hold on to your respect and your dignity by opposing black laws which have been implemented today. So the Indian history is filled with these movements, peaceful movements, where people have got together and said, we will not undergo tyranny anymore. We shall not take your sin anymore. So two other movements I wanted to make sure that we shared because I think um, there's so much that we would love to be learning. And I think especially now as we're coming into a new chance to reaffirm our democracy in the U.S. And a lot of people are very tired out from the stress of Corona and the stress of Trump and the stress of the world and the the anguish of the catastrophes that the world is showing us the earth is showing us with fire with drought with flood 
with volcano eruption. It's been a lot to endure. And I think the, the will that we have, the confidence to work together to reclaim our democracy, we need a little boost. So I'm grateful for these uh, expressions of, of inspiration that we can find resonance with across the world in, in this wonderful nation who is, like us, was a colony of the British Empire and, like us, established a democracy in its wake. There's a wonderful movement that's that we don't have in the US. We did not have the same. Vinoba Bave and Vimala Takar were two in the group of pilgrims who walked around in the 1940s. Please tell us, will you, the purpose of the walk of Vinoba Bave? Severin, my own grandfather, donated lands to Vinoba Bave when he came to our village. So Vinoba Bhave was a legend and he was not just an ordinary man. Gandhi gave him kind of a title of a, of a Brahmachari, which just means a person devoted to the monastic life. Vinoba Bhave, when Gandhi died, he decided to take on Gandhi's mission of reform all across India. He realized that the biggest problem that the Indian peasants had that time was landlessness. And there were many families which had ample land and where, where there were those who did not even have one single cloth to wear. So he came upon this great walk and he walked the entire length of, and the breadth of this country, seeking land from the landed and then redistributing it to the people who had nothing, especially people who belonged to the lowest strata of societies, to the lowest castes, even people who are beyond the caste. They were so kind of marginalized in society. He came also to our village and at that point, my grandfather gave away all his prime land to the movement and also built a school for the education of women and the education of underprivileged people. So our family has been deeply involved with that movement. It was called the Bhudan movement. Even today, millions of acres were collected and many, many thousands and millions of people have actually gotten land because of that great man, Vinoba Bhave. Well, and this is uh, particularly poignant because in Corona times, we have seen an expansion of inequality in this U.S. economy and in the world. And the rich have gotten much richer and the, the poor have gotten poorer. But everybody, you know, everybody has gotten poor who has a small business, who relies on the functioning of the economy. There's been such a... An, imperil, an imperilment, a, a, a precariousness that is now experienced by so many people, not just the elderly who are afraid to go out of their house, but for everybody who's, for whom normal life has ceased. And it, is, makes, it makes for a very fearful time, a very um, dangerous time. And what you're, exp what you're telling us the story is of how a country understood that its own self-interest, its own independence, its own peace really relied on not allowing for the desperation of the people inside the country, that we're, there is no place to escape. We're all here together and we have to take care of each other and we have to allow people to take care of themselves. And that was the kind of core insight as I read the the book of the monograph about Vinoba Bave, what that you cannot have a, a country that 
is self-determined when so many people are desperate. And I think that is the same insight we have to bring to bear in the U.S. context that this level of inequality that we have is is unsafe for all of us. And if we if we want to be safe, we have to be working together more to be sharing better. And especially, I mean, when I'm talking, always I'm talking about how do we bring more land into organic agriculture? How do we bring more land into health? How are we restoring the flowing of our rivers and the health of our soils? How are we collaborating within our civic infrastructure? Not just, you know, some radicals or some countercultures, um, but a deep collaboration within society to affirm the health and the safety of our whole population. That's what's at stake. Um, and I wonder one other movement that you know about that I thought would be a great lesson um, in the U.S., especially since we, yesterday we had the first rain in Southern California for nine more than nine months. And the rainfall in California, which is, as you know, our prime agricultural region, has been very unstable and has been in a drought. The whole western region of the United States has been experiencing extreme drought, extreme fire, uh, and uh, extreme destabilization. And so many people are saying, well, it's climate change. And yes, it's climate change, but it's also the decisions of humanity who have paved, who have pumped, who have mined, who have pulverized the soil, who have denuded the hills, uh, who have removed the vegetation from along the rivers, and whose actions have made these systems, these living ecosystems, so much more vulnerable to the changing climate, that have removed the, the trees who provided the transpiration that makes the clouds that brings the rain. And so the work that we have now is the work to repair the functioning of our ecosystems. And again, the work in India is such an inspiration. I wonder if you could describe some of the work of the Flow Partnership. Before I, I begin on that, uh, I think you hit a very important point about fear and about the deepening depression which is taking place in America right now. I think today the world is filled with fear. There is brother against brother, sister against sister, father against mother. And even if you sneeze once, people think that you're going to give them corona. And imagine in a time like that, when, when everywhere in the world there is fear and there is hatred, these farmers are sitting next to each other with no masks on, with no social distancing, and none of them have got corona. They have shown the world that there is only in community is there hope and is there resilience and is there life. Now, with that example already in front of us on a human dimension, why do we forget? Like, for example, in India, we still believe that we are not separate from the earth. The earth and us are one thing. Plants are as much alive as us and they deserve the same rights as us. That's been our culture. That's been our Vasudev Kutumbakam family. Even the earthworm to the butterfly, to the rivers, to the forest, to the lakes and ponds, and even to fungi. All of us are, are one. Whether we may look different, we may talk different, the bird may sing and we may shout, but we are the same. And it's about time that we recognize this consciousness, that we are one. And I think Thomas Berry talks about this, you know, in, in all of his works at great lengths, that how it's one universe and we are all a part of it. 
and that's where the flow foundation comes in and and, and of course uh, the waterman of india as he's famously called rajinder singh his his work is not only known in the northern parts of india but all over because he's helped bring water you know with water which is the real exiler of life back into communities he's helped transform landscapes you know india is experiencing such a major water crisis that chomsky in i think one of his recent telecasts has said that india and pakistan may be on the verge of nuclear war because of water and the waterman of india as he is lovingly called is helping recreate water by 2030 it's said that india may actually finish off a major chunk of its water and whatever water remains will be so polluted with toxic pesticides heavy metals industrial pollutions that we can no longer drink it and anybody who drinks it will die eventually now imagine a country with almost 1.4 billion people which is being poisoned from the water and air while there are people who are making billions and billions of dollars pumping those toxins in the air and in the water so the work of the flow foundation is to regenerate these little sanctuaries in the country yes basically the the flow partnership i've been studying them because so many places are suffering from this desiccation and yet the paved surfaces run with water when it rains and it all runs off and pollutes the bays and pollutes the rivers and kills the fish and so the the basic project is rehydrate the earth and allow the water to slow and sink and spread and recharge the underground aquifers the rivers under the earth that are pouring through the earth that sustain all of the trees that make the clouds and and this is not a very high tech approach it's basically using thousands and thousands of interventions all across the landscape to achieve the rehydration of the river systems again it's an acknowledgement that we are living inside of a living system and that in order for the system to live in order for us to live the system the whole living system needs to live and it's not rocket science it's really the work of shovels it's the work of even small tractors it's the work of planting trees by the roadsides it's the work of intersecting the small uh, rivulets and interrupting the compaction of the roads with gutters that allow the water to drain etc cetera, etc cetera. it's not and again this is the same in the watershed of our democracy it's not just the president who needs to be changed it's the school board it's the town council it's the transportation department chair it's the climate adaptation committee it's the county council member it's the sheriff it's all of the layers of all of the institutions who have some impact some control over some part of the land some part of the decision making and i think basically one of the things we can definitely say is many more of us who thought we could just leave the work of the government to the government are discovering that no actually we cannot we need to get involved we need to become the government we need to be like aoc says we need to be inside <laughs> and also be outside and be with the world it's both things i would say be like severin and and have little gardens of hope everywhere and <laughs> less politics more agriculture <laughs> <laughs>
Gardens of hope. Yes, more of those, less of the talking, more of the doing, more of the digging, less of the less of the social media. <laughs> it's fun talking though. I like talking with you. Same here, Severin, same here. Well, we mustn't go too long or we lose our audience, but I I look forward to the next conversation and I yes, I look forward to the the exchange of ideas, the exchange of seeds and the exchange of perspectives. And I will put the links and that you have suggested for writers to read and movements to learn about and these these ecological interventions is there a place where people should be sending money but i haven't thought so far but let me look that up there are these farmer groups that are taking donations and maybe people can send their money directly to them that sounds like the right move so we'll put those in the notes that come along with that podcast and who knows maybe you in america could start a, a farmer like indian farmers protest fund and help them out they need social media they need their voices to be out there so we all can help i think that will be the next conversation is what is the most strategic way to help express this solidarity within our farmer universe because here we are we're all we're all connected to the same cause we all need sovereignty and when some of us are not free none of us are free we we understand that but we're not always exposed to the information properly because we're living inside our little media bubbles yes and that's why we need more of these conversations that's why i said we need for more people to talk and once there is a solidarity because see india and america our faiths are linked we are two of the biggest democracies so it's about time that the people who suffer the small farmers of india and the small farmers of america people who who've had to commit suicide in iowa people who've lost their farms people who foreclosed people whose bank agents are knocking at their door i think we need to all come together and expose their lie because right now in isolation they are fooling you and they are fooling us the same very people while their profits grow we all sink in despair so we need to have this conversations more conversations chevron and i think you are that conduit that can actually do this well you are that conduit too and i want to say another conduit is our own wonderful movement the organic movement and the farm support movement that grew up in the farm crisis of the 1980s i'm talking about the food sovereignty the family farm defenders the national family farm coalition farm aid rural affairs etc there's been a wonderful coalition come together who've been making a website called from disparity to parity.org and that is a basically a learning site that shares a, the core political analysis which says if we have a farm policy of cheap food and it undermines the farmers and the farm communities and the farm towns and the farm economy of a fair living then it results in what we have which is the impoverishment of the soil the impoverishment of the towns and the towns people and the democracies of rural america and of course the ill health of the people caused by the unwellness of our agricultural policies which were designed for maximum extraction by these companies from disparity to parity.org and you can read essays from some of our most amazing thinkers and reformers and advocates who've been in this game for 50 years and who've spent you know locked their horns into USDA politics for a long time and for whom it is such a shock and such a sadness that we would have once again a corporate guy running our agriculture department 
And I really, I really just say, please, everyone, take this quiet time, take these dark evenings to educate yourself and to become strengthened by the, the fierce will and the bravery of these Indian farmers and say, listen, we've got to be ready too. We've got to get our will strength back up because the time is coming when we might need it. Indra, what else can I say to you to say thank you so much? Just spread the word and tell everybody, Severin, for one day, promise yourself, for one day, all I'll do is talk about Indian farmers. That's what I want from you. <laughs> okay, for, for 10 days, all I'll do is talk about Indian farmers. Yes, hooray. <laughs> <laughs> much love to you. I can't wait to see you again. And um, let's keep our dialogue strong. Let's do it again next week if we have to. Definitely. All right. Bye-bye.